Father God, thank you for the privilege that we have, the opportunity of knowing you, God of creation, God of glory. Father, help us to realize and appreciate that privilege, though, Father, we probably could never really get our heads around the glory of that privilege, the privilege of having a personal relationship with you, the God of glory. We rejoice in that. We are thankful. We are grateful, Father. But, Father, we do, even, even in these moments when we realize it, we appreciate, we think about it, we, we realize so often we don't. We take it for granted. And, Father, oh, how much of our, our lives are distorted, our view of life distorted, how much of our lives we suffer turmoil, sorrow, fear, because we forget who our God is. And we fail to delight in you. We fail to value you above all else. You who are the great treasure. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience with us. Father, we are all just sinners stumbling forward in Christ. Stumbling forward to maturity. Father, thank you for your patience and how you gently prod us along. Thank you that you continue to work in us even when we don't care. You work in us to give us the will, the desire, and the ability to honor you. Father, you know better than I do that I have nothing to offer in myself. But you have everything to offer. I am nothing, but you are everything. Father, each one of us here seated here tonight, Lord God, we have no ability in and of ourselves to understand spiritual truth, to make sense of life. We cannot do it without your spirit to speak to us, to guide us through your word. So, Father God, I pray that you would rain down your spirit upon us now to give us understanding of your word. Father, help us to see the truth of your word. And, Lord God, help us to be honest and transparent before you to see the truth, the reality of ourselves as well to see a glorious Christ, and to see our need to delight in him. Work in our hearts, I pray, for your glory. God, get glory, I pray, for yourself. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we began talking about uh, experiencing joy, looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, as we look at that text together. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This morning, we looked at the nature of joy as we began looking at verse 4 of Philippians chapter 4. And um, in two weeks, when I return, Lord willing, on the 17th of November, in the morning and evening service, we'll look at verses 5, 6, and 7 together. But this morning, we looked at the nature of joy. And what we saw, what we discovered from the Word of God and, and all the texts of Scripture related to joy, actually not all of them, but several of them, is that joy is an attitude, an emotion, and an expression. 
that is commanded by God, an emotion, an expression that is commanded by God that we can experience regularly and consistently, even in the presence of sorrow, grief, and heartache, when we choose to pursue joy in the Lord. Joy is an attitude, an emotion, and an experience that every one of us can experience regularly, constantly, even when we're also experiencing grief and sorrow. We can know that joy, a lasting joy, a, a joy that is, that is in Scripture, it's unspeakable, it's even beyond human understanding. We can experience that as an emotion and an expression when we seek to find our joy in the Lord, when we give our lives fully over to experiencing joy in the Lord, to knowing joy in Him, delighting in Him. I said this morning that when we have what we value most, we will have joy. We will have joy. So we looked at the nature of joy this morning, and this evening we look at the necessity of joy. Let me ask you a few questions. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you read your Bible? And I want you to answer that. Some might immediately think, well, I read my Bible because I should. I read my Bible because God commanded me to. Why do you pray? Well, because it's good, and, and it's good for me to let God know what I need and what I want, and it's, it's good to pray, and the Bible tells me to pray. Why do you come to church? Well, because God's Word tells me to, and, and I need to obey, and I need to do what God tells me to do, and so I come to church because I'm supposed to. Why do you serve in ministry? Well, because God tells me that I'm supposed to use my gifts and I want to be obedient to God and, and, and serve God in ministry and, and because it's my responsibility, it's my duty before God as a believer to be part of the body of Christ and, and, and so to fulfill my duty, I serve in ministry. Is it a joy? Is it a delight? Do I delight? Do I find joy? Do, do I see it as a pleasure and a joy to, to, to look at God's Word and study God's Word and, and commune with God in prayer and fellowship and worship? Do I delight in, do I find joy in serving Him? Probably most of us would say, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Depends on how the children are behaving, right? Depends on how the choir is behaving. Depends on how the praise team's behaving, right? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes I get tired. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Getting into God's Word, spending time with God, serving in ministry. Do we do it just because it's a duty, because we're supposed to, to be obedient to God? Or is it a delight? Is it a joy? What does Scripture say about this? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Why is joy necessary? Joy in the Lord is necessary because joy in the Lord is God's chief motivation, God's desired motivation for all of us in all that we do. That is the, the fullest motivation that God wants us to have, the highest motivation that we would delight in the Lord and that we would do everything in our life out of our delight and our joy in the Lord, delighting in the Lord. Not duty, not discipline, or what I get out of it. 
Now, to help us see that, let me take you to some of the texts that perhaps in the Bible most people would see as, as most focusing on externals and doing things out of duty, doing things out of obedience. So let me take you to the book of, of Deuteronomy. A lot of people would look at the Old Testament law and say that, that the Old Testament law is about externals and, and laws and what people are supposed to do and, and things like that. And, and the New Testament focused more on the heart. And the New Testament focuses more on, on change from the inside out, whereas the Old Testament focuses more on externals, laws, and so forth. Is that true? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Actually, this, these few verses right here kind of sum up for the, for the Jew. This is called the Shema, and they recite it re- regularly. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. They repeat it regularly as kind of their credo, their, their statement of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Now watch what he says here. You shall love. Now let me explain to you that in the Hebrew, that word love actually speaks, and it's used throughout the Old Testament, not just of action, but also emotion. Emotion. It's used for a husband's affection for his wife. Okay, and clearly in the context, it is about emotion. Okay, not in this context, but in other contexts of the Old Testament. And so this Hebrew word encompasses both emotion and action. So here's what God is saying to the people. You shall love in emotion and in action the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart. Here where the the law is being summed up for the nation of Israel, God just doesn't say, listen, here's the things I'm telling you to do, you just do them. Whether you feel like it or not, you just do them because I just told you to, and so you just do it. No, God is saying to them, first of all, get this straight, love God with all your heart. Love him with all your passions. Love him with all your emotions. This should be affection. This should be a part of every part of your being. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your might, God leaves no part of the human being out of his command to love him. It should be about our whole person. Every part of us as human beings should be engaged in the process of loving God in emotion and in action. God wants our whole being, not just a part. These words, he says, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Not just in your head, not just in your actions. God says, first, I want it in your heart. In your heart. It's not just about going through the motions. It's not just about obedience, whether I feel like it or not. If I have no heart to do it, no desire to do it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Well, we're just supposed to do whatever God tells us to do, whether we feel like it or not. And it doesn't matter how we feel, just do it. That's not what it says. What does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, just in case we're missing it. It says, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments 
which I am commanding you today, commandment, which I am commanding to love. To love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Is God satisfied? Is God content with us just going through the motions of obedience, just doing it without a heart to do it, without a desire? Is God satisfied with that? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 46 and 47. Look at what God says here. These curses will be a perpetual sign and a wonder with reference to you and your descendants. Because, look at this, verse 47, because you have not served the Lord your God joyfully and wholeheartedly with the abundance of everything you have. What is God saying here? God's not saying they didn't obey him. God's saying, if you don't, and this is actually looking forward, this is actually pronouncing on Israel what's going to happen if they obey God in these last chapters of Deuteronomy, and what's going to happen if they don't obey God from their heart. And God says, even if you do the right things, but you don't do it joyfully to me, even if you don't do it wholeheartedly to me, in other words, you might be doing it, you might be going through the emotions of obedience, you're doing the externals, you're doing the sacrifices, you're doing these things, but you're not doing it with joy, you're not doing it with all your heart. God says, I'm still going to discipline you. Why? Because God's not satisfied with us just going through the motions. I mentioned it this morning, let me mention it again. God, all through, especially the Old Testament, and Jesus with the Pharisees, continually, over and over and over again, rebukes outward conformity without a heart for God. Continually rebukes it. God says to Israel, shut the doors. I'm tired of your worship. You come in and you worship me, and, and you, you, you make it look good, but your hearts are far from me. You might recall Pastor Lamberton talking about as if worship from Isaiah chapter 58, where the nation of Israel is rebuked and God says to them, you're, you're doing all these things and it is as if you're worshiping me. In other words, you're coming in, you're doing the sacrifices, you're doing the feast, you're doing all the things I've told you to do and it's as if you're worshiping and somebody might even come in to your service and, and say, oh, they're worshiping God. And God says, uh-uh. Man could look at it and say it's worship, but I look at it and I say, that isn't worship. Why? Because it's not coming from the heart. It's just outward display. It's just, it's just you doing things physically, but your heart's not there. And God rebukes that over and over again. Psalm 100, verse 2 says, serve, serve, the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Joy in the Lord is God's desired motivation for us in all we do. Not duty, not discipline. Not what I will get out of it. I asked um, Brother Anthon 
before the service, if you would mind, there's something that, that someone mentioned, I, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember who it was, again yesterday in the seminar. The difference between get to and got to. You ever had times where you've spent time with the Lord and you've been in His Word, perhaps maybe even in a service, and you've heard the Word of God spoken, and, and God really spoke to you, and, and you, you, you wanted to tell some others about it, or, or you had the opportunity and you share with them, and say, I, you know, I can tell you what, what I heard or what God did and what God showed me, and hey, look what I saw in this verse. That's delighting in God. That's delighting in the Lord. And what flows from that is, I have a desire, I have a delight, I can't wait to share that with others. Why? Because I've found delight in the Lord, and I want to share that with others. And it's not a duty, it's a joy. So Israel Houghton said that, that one day he was uh, heading to church to, to lead worship, and he got a phone call. And somebody told him they had t- front row tickets for a basketball game, I, I think it was. And he says, well, I can't, I've got to lead worship tonight. And he said, as soon as he heard it, it was like the Lord slapped him up the back of his head or something like that, he said, and, and he realized what he was saying. And he remembered back to a time when it wasn't a I got to, it was a I get to. I get to lead God's people in worship. I get to teach children in Sunday school. I get to work in Awana. I get to be part of the praise team. I get to help operate the sound system at church so people can hear the Word of God. I get to help prepare communion. I get to... Is that what it is? I got the privilege of serving the King of Kings. This is cool. This is exciting. I get to do something to to honor God. Or is it, I got to go to Awana tonight. I got to go to choir practice. I got to get up and read my Bible. I got to get up and pray. Is it an I got to or an I get to? That's what we're talking about here. When I'm delighting in the the Lord, when I value God above all else, when I see God as the highest treasure of all existence, there'll be a lot less I got to and a lot more I get to. I get to spend time with God. I get to to get into His Word, to study His Word, to understand and hear from Him. I get to. You see, if I'm saying I got to, if it's a duty, I'm missing something. I'm missing something. And I'm as guilty as you are. Because I sometimes feel like I got to rather than I get to. This was humbling for me as well. Let's look back at our notes together. Joy in the Lord displaces duty as our motivation. When you have joy in the Lord, you no longer serve out of duty, but out of delight. Joy in the Lord displaces duty. When I have joy and delight, when I'm delighting in the Lord, I serve because I delight. It's a joy to do it because I get to. God repeatedly rebukes worship and service that is simply performance of religious practices without genuineness of heart. While it is proper, it is proper to do what is right and minister when we don't feel like it, we should be alarmed. 
And we should be unsatisfied with that. I don't feel like reading the Word. I need to do it. But I should be concerned. Why don't I feel like it? Why don't I want to? It should be a signal to me when I don't want to, when I don't feel like it, when I feel like it's all I got to. I got to get into the Word of God. I got to pray. I got to serve in ministry. I got to go to choir practice. I got to go to praise team practice. We should be alarmed and we should be concerned. Something's wrong with our heart. Something's wrong with our heart. We should do what's right, even though we don't feel like it, but we should be alarmed and concerned that we don't feel like doing what's right. God wants us to obey Him and serve Him from a motivation of heartfelt delight in Him and the joy of pleasing Him. God wants us to obey Him and serve Him from a motivation of heartfelt delight in Him and joy in pleasing Him. It is good to do what is right out of duty rather than to do what is wrong. Absolutely. But if doing what is right is simply out of duty, without desire and delight, there is still sin in my heart. If I'm just doing it out of duty and not out of delight, there's still sin in my heart. If I have no desire to obey and serve God, I need to repent of my wrong attitudes, my wrong values, my idolatry. Look at this. When the Christian life is more about disciplining myself to obey and doing my duty rather than delighting in God, pursuing Him and serving Him out of love, something is wrong. When the Christian life, when my life in Christ is more about duty, it's more about disciplining myself, it's more about obedience, it's more about what I, I'm supposed to do than what I get to do, and delighting in God and valuing Him. Something's wrong. I'm not valuing God above all else. I'm not delighting in God. I'm not finding my joy in the Lord. And in fact, I would suggest I am an idolater. Because I am valuing something else above God. I am rejoicing in something else above God. I am delighting in something else above God. And that is idolatry. Joy in the Lord is God's desired motivation for us in all that we do, not duty, not discipline, or what I will get out of it. Joy in the Lord displaces duty. Joy in the Lord also displaces personal benefit as our motivation. Many times our, our motivation is not delight in the Lord, but also our motivation may not be duty. Sometimes our motivation is actually what we'll get out of it. So why do we do what is right? Because if we do what is right, we expect to experience the blessed life. Is that why? Let me ask you a series of questions. What do you do you're living your life thinking, I'm, I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to pray because then my life is going to be better and I'm going to experience the blessed life. What do you do when you're faithful in prayer and Bible study so you can experience a better life and you still face problems and pain in life? What do you do? What do you do when you're doing what you do is all about what I'm going to get back from God and 
just doesn't seem to get me anything back. What do you do when you strive to be financially responsible and you give to the Lord sacrificially thinking that you're going to, to, to do well financially because of that, but you can't seem to be able to achieve the comfortable lifestyle you're pursuing? What do you do when you've done everything you know to do in ministry, but nothing seems to be happening? And in fact, people or children continually grumble, complain, and find fault. What do you do? What do you do when you're doing the right things and you don't seem to be getting the better life? You don't seem to be getting the blessed life. Man, I'm doing all the right things. And, 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 and I thought, if I'm doing all the right things, I'm going to get this, this blessed life. Perhaps your motivation's wrong in the first place. Perhaps you're pursuing a motivation other than what God has for you. See, our modern philosophy and our modern theology is that you do right to get a blessed life, free from problems, free from pain, a life of success, of wealth and health. And our theology that, that we hear much of the time today is that if I'm not free from problems, if I'm not enjoying a comfortable lifestyle, financial and business success, then, then something's wrong. I, I, I need to have more faith, or, or I need to pursue these things more, with, with greater faith in God. And doing right becomes a, a path to the blessed life. So many believers are pursuing doing what is right so that they can get the blessing, the blessed life, the better life. And it's really all about pursuing blessing rather than pursuing the blesser. It's a question of motivation. Am I doing what is right because of an expectation of a blessing or simply because God deserves to be followed because He is God and I love Him? Am I in hot pursuit of the blessing or am I in hot pursuit of the blesser? What is it all about? What is your relationship with the Lord all about? It's about, hey, I need to pursue God because that's, that's where I'm going to find the best life I can have and, and the, my, my, my most blessed life and, and I'm going to get success and, and my finances are going to be better and, and my home and, and my business and, and, and all these things. If I pursue God, that's, that's what I'm going to get. We're pursuing the blessing rather than the blesser. Listen, God doesn't give to draw our hearts to the gift, but to draw our hearts to the giver. God doesn't give to focus our hearts on the gift, but to focus our hearts on the giver. God doesn't give to draw our hearts to the gift, but to draw our hearts to the giver. God doesn't give so that we would seek Him for the gift, but that we would seek Him as the great giver, and in fact, the greatest gift. God's highest goal is not to bless our lives with the gifts, but to bless our lives with the giver. God doesn't want us to pursue Him simply as the great giver, the one who gives me things, but rather the great God. He wants us to be thankful for Him, not just the blessing. 
God wants us to be thankful for Him independent of any blessing. Joy in the Lord, whether I'm getting the blessed life or not. The blessed life in terms of physical success, material success. God doesn't want us to live in pursuit of the blessing. God wants us to live in pursuit of the blesser. That's what joy in the Lord is all about. And pursuing joy in the Lord and doing what I do in all of life, every part of life. Because of joy, because of delighting in the Lord. Not for what I'll get for it. But for the sheer joy of knowing the great blesser. The God of all creation. Look at the words of John Piper up on the screen. The pleasure we seek is the pleasure that is in God himself. He is the end of our search. God is the end of our search. Not the means to some further end. Not the means to get material blessing. God is the end. Not the means to get what I want. Not the means to some other blessing. Our exceeding joy, <clears throat> our exceeding joy is He the Lord, not the streets of gold or the reunion with relatives or any blessing of heaven. Let me pause for a moment there and ask you a question. Would you want to go to heaven if God wasn't there? If, if God had this wonderful place with streets of gold and, and wonderful rivers and, 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 and just a glorious place, that we could go to when we die. But God says, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be over here just in this meadow by a stream. Would you prefer the streets of gold and that glorious place or being with God? Continuing, we don't Reduce God to a key that unlocks a treasure chest of gold and silver. Rather, we seek to transform the heart so that the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Job twenty-two twenty-five. Here's the principle. Joy is experienced. Joy is experienced. Lasting joy. Regular joy. Consistent joy is experienced when we focus on fixing our motivations, not just our actions. When we focus on fixing our motivations, why am I doing what I'm doing? What am I valuing? What am I desiring? What am I living for? We'll know joy when we fix our motivations, not just our actions. When we delight in the Lord, we will obey and serve Him because it is our delight. Joy in the Lord is God's desired motivation for all that we do. Not duty, not discipline, not personal benefit. Second, joy in the Lord is not just in spite of our circumstances. It actually defines and interprets our circumstances. Look at me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Paul, speaking of the Macedonian believers... 
a group of people that were very poor but gave very generous, very generously to a need. Paul says they are being tested by many troubles. Look what he says here. They are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy. Look here. Look what he's saying here. They don't have any of the blessing externally, the blessing that our, our, our culture and, and a lot of our modern theology looks at and says, here's the blessing from God. It's the material things. It's the health. It's the wealth. It's all these things. Paul's saying they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have those things. They were poor. But they had abundant joy in their hearts. They were filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. Paul actually explains here that, that these, these Macedonian believers wanted to give to this need so much that even Paul actually told them, no, you really aren't able to help. But what Paul's saying here is their abundant joy was so great that, that they actually forced themselves upon Paul and said, Paul, you've got to take this money from us. Paul's saying, you're too poor to give. And they say, oh no, we've got abundant joy. It's a delight. I'll do without a meal to help somebody else. That's what we're talking about. They were poor, very poor. Why did they do this? Because they had abundant joy. They had joy in the Lord, so they gave generously. Oh, that I would have the heart of James. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know these verses. To the twelve tribes that are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Oh, that I would have the heart of James. James isn't just spouting off. James isn't just telling these people this. This is the heart of James. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Wouldn't you love to have the heart of James? Wouldn't you have that, have that heart when, when the trials come, when the difficulties come, you get bad news from the doctor, you, you get into a car wreck, you, whatever it is, your washing machine breaks down, you burn lunch, to consider it all joy, oh, to have the heart of James. We can when we delight in the Lord, and we can grow in that. We're all on the journey. Look at the words of Warren Wiersbe. I want to quote a couple men in, in the rest of the message tonight because they say it so much better than I could. Warren Wiersbe says, our values determine our evaluations. Just like we said this morning. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. Look at that again. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. It's about values. It's about what I really care about. It's about what I delight in. If we live only for the present and forget the future, 
then trials will make us bitter, not better. Job had the right outlook when he said, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So when trials come, immediately give thanks to the Lord and adopt. What is he saying here? Choose a joyful attitude. Do not pretend. Look what he's saying here. Choose a joyful attitude. But he's saying, don't pretend it. Don't try and make it up. Don't try and manufacture it. Do not try self-hypnosis. Simply look at trials through the eyes of faith. Look at it the way God does. Outlook determines outcome. To end with joy, begin with joy. Preacher's commentary says this, James is telling us not to fake it. We should have a joy which is neither deliberately created nor forced as some impossible religious obligation. To the contrary, we should have pure joy, unadulterated joy, all-encompassing joy, thorough joy. We should have it. It should be the real thing. Oh, to have the heart of James, to look at things through God's eyes, and as soon as they come, to, 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 to consider it, to count it all joy, and to say, God has a purpose in this. God has a plan in this. God is working to, to mature me in Christ, and I want to grow in Christ, and I don't know what God's doing here. I don't know what he's all about here, but I know God's up to something, and God wants to do something for his glory. And so I'm going to delight in whatever God has for me, whatever God's going to do through me. And oh, to have the heart of Habakkuk. Look at me, with me at Habakkuk chapter 3. Joy in the Lord interprets and defines our circumstances. I listened, Habakkuk said, and my stomach churned. The sound made my lips quiver. My frame went limp as if my bones were decaying, and I shook as I tried to walk. I long for the day of distress to come upon the people who attack us. Watch what he says here. When the fig tree does not bud. Now listen here. Let's pause for a moment. Remember, Habakkuk is living in an agricultural society. Everything is determined by the weather and what's growing and livestock and things like that. It's all about those things, and livelihood is based on those things. When the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, when the olive trees do not produce, and the, the fields yield no crops, when the sheep disappear from the pen, and there are no cattle in the stalls, when the world is falling apart around me, and I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table, I don't know how I'm going to make it through another day, and everything just seems to be a complete disaster, I will rejoice because of the Lord. I will be happy because of the God who delivers me. Close with the words of Walter Kaiser. The prophet Habakkuk had been given a vision that had left him deeply agitated. 
He was so shaken by the terrifying news that God would bring the Babylonian hordes down on Judah that his body seemed to collapse. There can be no doubt that the prophet experienced real fear with pronounced physical and psychological effects. Look at your notes. The amazing aspect of this saying and the fact that makes it so noteworthy is that in spite of all the trauma, Habakkuk received the gift of joy. This was not merely resignation about things over which he had no control. Instead, this text teaches us to rejoice in God even when every instinct in our bodies is crying out with grief. Though fully alarmed at the outrage that would take place, Habakkuk experienced a holy joy, a divine enabling to rejoice in the Lord. The object of his joy was the God of his salvation. Some things are just more abiding and important than this temporal world. The temporal world of Habakkuk is falling apart. But he had joy because he was delighting in the Lord and God's purposes and God's plans and God's glory. Sometimes it seems as if history is out of control and no one knows where it will end. Since God is ultimately behind the course of history, he is in control and he knows where it will end. Thus, all the symbols of prosperity, the fig tree, the vine, the olive, the fields, the flocks, and the herds of cattle could be removed. But none of these compared with the joy that came from the living God himself. Even though that joy did not in itself mitigate the depth of the physical pain felt in the body, it did not rise above it in worth, reality, and depth. Here's the principle. Joy is experienced when we choose to define and interpret our life circumstances from the viewpoint of joy in the Lord. When God is our great delight, the circumstances that mature us to show His glory, though painful, will be pure joy. Oh, that we would have the heart of Habakkuk to say, God, even if it hurts, I'll find joy in you. I will delight in you because everything else could be stripped away, but I still have you, and nobody can take away from me the greatest treasure I could ever have. Nobody can take it away from you. Nobody can take it away from me because the greatest treasure you could ever have is your God. Relationship with Him. Knowing Him. Delighting in Him. And we need to look at our world from the viewpoint of faith through the eyes of faith. Though everything seems to be falling apart, it is not. Because my God still reigns. The Lord reigns. Let the earth 
rejoice. Rejoice. I can rejoice because my God still sits on the throne and my God is doing what is best for me all the time. And so even when it does hurt, it causes pain, physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it is, I can rejoice because I say, God, it hurts. God, you're doing something great. You're doing something glorious. You're chipping away something in my character. You're doing something through me. When you bring me through this, you must want to use, use something in this to, to, to mature others. Looking at it through the eyes of faith and that I delight in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I'm sure that all of us, as we look at the heart of James, the heart of Habakkuk, we realize that too much of the time that is, that is not our heart. That isn't a reflection of the way we go about our lives. As trials come, as difficulties come, Father, we too often reflect the flesh more than joy in the Lord. React with fear, react with worry, anxiety, doubt. Father, may those things be a trigger to us to remind us, to help us to realize and to stop and say, wait a minute, what am I delighting in? What is my joy? What is my life all about? What is this worry and fear coming from? Father, help us to look at life, the circumstances of life, through the eyes of delighting in you. Perhaps as you're sitting there, you realize that your life has been full of anxiety and worry, doubt, fear. Are you delighting in the Lord? Can you say to God, God, whatever happens in my life, whatever you want to do, to shape me, to mold me, to use me. Father, I'll accept it, and I will delight in you. Help me to delight in you. Help me to see these things from the viewpoint of delighting in you. Help me to understand what it means. Perhaps your Christian life is more about duty and obedience, doing it because you're supposed to, You've got to, not you get to. Been struggling in ministry, would you confess that to God? God, I want to delight in you. God, I want to serve you because it is a joy, because I delight in you. Help me to see in you the greatest treasure this world, this universe has to offer. Help me to value you above all else delight in you and that serving you, that being in your word and praying that, that Lord God, it would just be an, a, an expression of my delight in you, that, that, that I can't wait to be able to get into your word. I can't wait to, to be able to be, be in your, your, your presence undistracted and, and worshiping you and, and, and talking to you. I can't wait to worship with your people. 
what a privilege I, I have to, to get to serve you and minister to people. Lord God, so work in our hearts that we would not be doing because we've got to, but Lord God, that we would be doing because we get to. We get to. The privilege, the honor, the delight of serving you, of knowing you. Change us, we pray.